Hey, everyone. Thank you so much for listening and sharing our very first episode of The Well Podcast. We have this idea to share stories as simple and as raw as we can. So don't come here looking for perfection because we are going to miss the mark. We want to find you where you are, too, in your daily world, nailing it some days and other days, not so much. Good seasons and the lousy ones. There should be a place where you can share your good news, but also a place to share the hurt, because Lord knows we can't go with this alone. So as much as possible, we want to bring you unedited conversations from our everyday people. We think that simple stories of everyday life are the most relatable, and we want to connect with anyone and everyone so we can share how we found grace and freedom through Jesus. My name is Amber, and I'm going to be bringing you these stories. We are recording these once a month for the most part at a live event that you are invited to at Shandon Baptist Church in Columbia, South Carolina. On this first episode, you get to meet a friend of mine, Anna. Let me tell you, this girl takes life by the horns. This girl is as strong as they come. You will not find a more fierce presence anywhere. She was interviewed by her friend, Aaron, and you are going to love Anna's wit, her fearless take on life, and especially her story. Let's meet Anna. This is my sweet friend, Anna Schrall, and she's agreed to go first. And um, so, Anna, can you tell us about yourself, your little biography? I gotta get comfortable. Um, So I'm originally from North Carolina in a suburb suburb right outside of Raleigh called Zebulon. And I grew up on a farm. And we, let's see. We had about 45 acres. We didn't really farm as in like farm for money. We had, my mom was a special ed preschool teacher. My dad was a leader at, a, at Progress Energy. We just did it for fun. So we had um, a herd of goats. We had a pod-bellied pig. We had about 20 plus horses um, at our place. There was always at least four or five dogs in the house. Probably we had 10 or 15 cats. I mean, there was like a menagerie. Like if you want to name chickens, I mean, it was just a little bit of everything. Um, Fun, though. I have a younger brother. He's two years younger than I. And we just had fun. It was one of those situations where you went out in the morning and you came back when it was dark. And you just did what you wanted to. I can remember growing up, my brother and I would go. We had, I think it was a 16-stall barn. And we would start at the end. We'd climb up into the rafters. Now, I mean, I'm talking like we're seven and five or seven and eight, whatever it was, young. We would climb up to the rafters and see how fast we could go to the other end without touching the ground. And my parents were like, sure, whatever. We rode, I mean, mean, it was nothing for me to jump on a horse in the middle of the pasture and barefoot and do whatever. That was life. So that was life. Um, I asked my mom when it it started, but I think around 10 is when I started full watch um, for the farm, and if you don't know what that is for anybody that's raised on the blacktop, they were, <laughs> they were those people. They, um, you had to spend the night, if the mayor was coming close to having her baby, you needed to spend the night in case something was wrong. So I started helping my mom at 10, and by, gosh, probably 12 or 13, I did it by myself. So on Fridays and Saturday nights, I'd sleep on a cot in the stall with the horse, And I remember one of them would come and nudge me like in the middle of the night and love on you. And you just, that's just what you did. But I will tell you this, my friends in high school hated coming to my house. Oh. Because at five o'clock, I had an hour's worth of chores to do. 
And they were like, I don't want to go clean stalls. I don't want to go feed the horses. So that was, um, yeah. that was the downside to living on a farm. Yeah. So after you, you left the farm, did you go to college? I did. I went to NC State and studied animal science. I actually didn't work in an office until after college. I worked um, in college. I wanted to be a veterinarian, large animal veterinarian, and um, partied a little too hard the first semester. <laughs> didn't quite do so well in school. Mm-hmm. Made straight A's the next time. That was not so good the first semester. Um, but I went to, I worked at the equine unit there and was an assistant breeding manager. So I did like artificial insemination on horses and I, you know, like you picture the glove and all that kind of stuff. That's me. Um, I worked at a poultry research lab. I worked at the bovine unit. So we did, we had all kinds of adventures on the farm, even in college. Mm -hmm. Did you date anybody in college? Yeah, so this is where the story starts of my slippery slope. So I was raised in the United Methodist Church. We went to church every Sunday, um, and that's just what you did. Like, there was no excuse to miss. You just went every Sunday. But I never really became a believer. I remember at age 12 or 13 feeling the call to go to the altar, like when they did the altar call and everything, Um, but I didn't know what that meant, so I just didn't go. So when I went to college, I was not a believer, and so I... Um, started working, I can't believe I'm going to say this in public, um, for all the world to hear, but my freshman, this is why I did not do so well my freshman year, I started working at Hooters. I was a hostess for them, and I met my husband, and yeah. Every, every girl's dream, every mother's dream for a guy. Would not advise that, that's not exactly where I would advise picking up men, but that's where I picked up mine. So I was a hostess, and I remember him sitting there, and I made some snide, snarky remark, and then he asked me on a date, and he was the first guy I ever gave my number to, and we dated for all through college and got married. He was three years older than I was, so when I graduated after four years, we um, got married. And And so fast forward. We'll fast forward a little bit. We got married. I knew... Walking down the aisle, I was not supposed to be getting married, but I was too scared to say no. We had 250 people. It was the big fancy wedding. It was exactly what you wanted in your small town, those kinds of things. And that's growing. I mean, that's what I thought I was supposed to do. You go to college, you get your degree, you get married, you get a job. It's like then you have children. Like it's this is what you're supposed to be doing. And so I remember How old thinking, were you? I was tw- 22 when I got married. And I remember walking down the aisle going, oh my I mean, I remember smiling and going, I'm not supposed to be doing this. I'm not supposed to be doing this. And so we got married in August, and um, that's when we, I'm going to keep going until you tell me to stop. Yeah, well, okay, just seeing it. Yeah, so I know okay. that, that this guy is not your no, current gonna, husband. Yes. I know your current husband, Correct. and you didn't meet him at Correct. Hooters. Wait, so, no. <laughs> I, I need to, I need, need you, you, to, fill the, you, you need to fill the gap. <laughs> For me, yeah. So we were married for six years and then got divorced. Um, in between that time, at 23, we, so yeah, it was around 23, I got pregnant. We, I, knew, I found out around that time that I have polycystic ovary disease. So um, I didn't know what that was until I tried to get pregnant and had all these infertility issues. We tried for a year, nothing happened. So it basically means that the hormones 
that I have all these cysts on my hormones that override your natural ones. So it makes it pretty difficult to get pregnant. So I went through infertility. Um, I have to give myself shots to get pregnant and then I can give a shot to cause me to ovulate and can do it the natural way. And we got pregnant. And so um, that was fantastic. I was sick. Gosh, I was sick. I threw up five times a day for four months, maybe five. Oh my God. It's, it's all blocked out and blurred at this point. So that was in 2000. And I found out, I saw his heartbeat on 9-11. So I will always know what I was doing on 9-11 is um, I, I saw his heartbeat on 9-11. And so um, everything was normal. I was working. I, was, I moved into, when I got out of college, I moved into recruiting. So I um, moved into scientific recruiting, like helping find lab people and the, those kind of things. So I, everything seemed fine. I had a bad cold right after Christmas and stayed home one day and I stood up and I thought, I feel like I just peed on myself. And it wasn't. It was my water had broken. So I had my son, um, well, I went into labor. I didn't go into labor, but I went into the doctors and they said, yeah, you are, I'm 24 weeks pregnant. You have had, um, your water's broken. You need to go straight to the hospital. So they transferred me to UNC Chapel Hill where I stayed on bed rest for two weeks. And my husband was so sweet, he spent every single night with me. Um, and this is a, at this point, I'm on the other side of Raleigh, so it's like a 45-minute drive for us to go, you know, for him to go back and forth. So I stayed in the hospital for two weeks, and then my water, and, and everything was fine, but then I went into labor. And um, my son, his name was Jake, was born at 26 weeks. They did an emergency C-section. And I'll tell you how little he was. I don't remember the exact weight of him, um, but I, I wear this ring still. This is my first wedding ring, and my husband knows it is. Um, but his arm could fit on this ring, and you'd still have room. That's how little he is. So he lived for two months. He was born on January 9th, so he would have been 16 this past January. And I visited him every day, twice a day. I went back to work. And, you know, this was, this was my life for two months. You'd call in the morning and, and pray that there was no bad report. And if it was, I didn't go in. I went, to, I went straight to the hospital. Mm-hmm. If it was a good report, then I called a few hours later. And he was in the NICU the whole time. And you, that's just what you did. And I would call at night before. And it got to the point where I would be like, no, you call. I'm, I'm, I just can't handle it today. And, and he was, it was very difficult for my husband to deal with everything that was going on. But you did, you just called five or six times a day and said, how's he doing? And some days it was good and some days it wasn't. He got two blood infections, so those were the rocky moments. And then you got the call in the middle of the night, you need to come right now, I can't guarantee he'll make it till morning. You'd rush to the hospital and then he'd make it. And then you did it again the next day. And so... Jake lived two months. He lived two months and, and then he stopped developing. His brain wasn't growing anymore. He had gotten his second blood infection, and I just, I just knew. And I just, it took me a little while to get there. I remember going to church, and my parents went with me that day, and because we were all going to have lunch and then go to the hospital afterwards. And so I remember going to church, and and they did the altar call, or they did the, like the last song or whatever. And I walked down the aisle. I just felt pulled. And again, remember, I'm not real. I'm I believed in God, and I believed in the concept of God, and I prayed, but I was not a believer. 
And so I remember going down that aisle and I knelt down and I'm sobbing the whole way down. And I go down to the end of the aisle and I kneel and I'm sobbing and this overwhelming peace came over. Well, my dad followed me down and put his arm around me, which really sent me sobbing. But I had this overwhelm, because I just was like, God, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. I can't let him go. And I had this overwhelming giving back to me. You have to let him go. And I thought, okay, that's what I have to do. And it took me about a week to get my husband and family and everybody kind of on board, because that's a, you know, that's a big decision to turn off of, you know, life support for your child. And so, um, we made calls and told the family to come if anybody wanted to come say goodbye to him. Friday was the day to do it. So everybody came in. I will never forget sitting. You know, they ha- I'm in my own room at this point because um, they had him in a special room. And he's, you know, in his little incubator. And my parents come in and my brother puts his hand on my shoulder. And my mom and dad come in. And my dad, who I have never seen cry, just lost it. Sobbing just sobbing. And we just sat there and cried because we knew it was going to happen. And so I remember um, like it was yesterday and it's 16 years ago. And it was the day before my birthday that the funeral was. So he died like on the 10th of March. And I held him and my husband was in and out. He, it was really, everybody else was off, you know, and they had the curtains closed and everything. So it was just me. And I remember sitting like in a chair like this and I'd only held him one other time because otherwise I couldn't hold him. He was too um, fragile. So I remember holding him in my arms and tears are just streaming down my face and they take everything out. And I just looked down at him and I said, go be with Jesus. He's going to be, he's going to take care of you now. I love you. Just go be with Jesus. And he just died in my arms. I will never forget it. It's not something you will ever, ever forget. I can't imagine that you can. Yeah. Yeah. How was your marriage? Um, a co- so interestingly enough, a couple like the next year, we got pregnant again naturally, um, which was kind of surprising. And my husband could not, he had buried everything because it was too difficult for him. And so, and I did too, to a degree. I remember just, shutting down after Jake died and my uncle who had lost a child I, he, he said come outside with me for a little bit they had come to visit and I was just like this the whole time and he said at some point and he took my arms he said you're going to have to do this and let somebody in and let and heal and so those were things that I got to and I had, I had friends that helped me through that and whatnot. and then we got pregnant again and so I was so excited and that's when they realized that the reason that I had the issues is I had um, surgery on my cervix at 18. And so because of that, my cervix is weak. So I always have to get it stitched now. It's called a cerclage. So they had set me up. They had done the, all the ultrasounds. Everything's fine. They do the cerclage at 16 weeks. So I went in for the appointment. Everything's great. Hey, you're going to have cerclage. Let's do an ultrasound right before. Like the day before is your pre-op. And I went and he, he didn't go with me. Um, so I went into my pre-op ultrasound and there was a miscarriage, no heartbeat. So instead of the cerclage, I had a DNC. And that's just kind of like after that is when we just never got we just never got past that but i also it, we were just there were issues already and when you add that kind of stress and pressure to it it just 
crumbled. And so um, we ended up, hi, whoever beeped in. <laughs> so we, um, I made the decision to leave. And after 10 years of being together, we divorced. And so I think I was about 27 at this point is when that occurred. Okay. So after so the divorce after and the loss 20, of Yes, so after that, I, um, I went wild, to be honest with you. I didn't know how to cope with everything. I just kind of, I partied. I put all my energy, and I did put energy into, I, like for a while when we first separated, I, we alternated nights. He got one night at the house, I got one night at the house until we could get everything through. So I stayed at friends' houses and things like that. And I threw myself into like a triathlon. I did a sprint triathlon to give me something to do. And I threw myself into work. And that wasn't enough. So I partied. I'd go out Thursday, Friday, Saturday night. I would drink. I would, if I wanted to have sex, I'd find somebody to have sex with. It, I mean, I, I just wanted to feel good. And so I just tried to find things to make me feel good. Whatever that looked like, you know, spending time with friends, family, it didn't matter. I just wanted to feel good. It's filling up with the I just wanted, stuff. yes. I, ju- I used that. I didn't know it at the time, but I used that to fill the hole that was there, not only from the losses that I had, but I think you also, you know, if you don't have Jesus in your heart, like if you haven't gotten there yet, you have this hole There's that, that's just sitting there. And so I was finding anything I could to fill that hole, to try to make me, and it never was enough, so you'd just do it more. And then you'd hate yourself for it afterwards. But then you'd do it again because you, it felt good for the night, but the next morning you hated yourself, or a week later, or whatever it was. So um, it's pretty amazing now, looking back on it, in those couple of years, how God protected me through that. Oh, yeah. I mean, I I can look back at, at it now and think, wow. There's no way I should have made it through that time and not gotten hurt or sick or whatever it could have been. Um, it's amazing that he, how he protected me mm-hmm. through that time. And so at some point you ended up in Columbia. Yes. So during my midlife crisis at 29, um, <laughs> I hope I don't get another one because that's going to be real bad if that was that one. I think you're set. Well, I'm going to be in trouble. <laughs> Y'all are going to have to have an intervention. <laughs> So I had started dating a guy. Um, I was 28. He was 41 or two. And so we dated for a year. And he was moving to Europe. He was um, a CEO for a company in the U.S. and in Europe. And he was moving to Europe. And I came about that close to moving with him. Had he said... Come, and we had talked about it. He, if he had said, come with me to Europe, I'd have been like, done. I'm gone. But he didn't. Here I am, once again, unhappy and alone. Career's not filling me up. I'm tired of partying. I don't have anybody with me. Like, I don't have a spouse or a boyfriend at this point. So I'm like, well, pff, what am I going to do now? Let's change jobs, because that makes sense. So I... <laughs> And somewhere along the way, I had left, found a job, got laid off, and I'm like, well, now what? So I found a job, and I'm interviewed in Atlanta, never been to Columbia. It was for a manager role here, and I said, sure, I'll take it. Do you need to go to Columbia to look at it? No, good. <laughs> so I did. So I, this was back before, this was, this was a while back. This was before you, this is when you printed off 
MapQuest. MapQuest. Yeah. You didn't have your phone. There's some of you in here that don't know what that is. Yeah, yeah. So before the phones, you actually had to go online and print out your little map and all this other stuff. So I literally had my two cats, my dog, and my Jeep Cherokee with as much stuff as we could pack in there, and MapQuest, and here we go. And so I moved here sight unseen on a Friday night, and I remember, I remember coming towards Forest Drive and going, how do I get to that Walmart? I need to get over to that Walmart. And every time I would turn, I'd turn to the base. And I'm like, flipping nature. I'm like, how do I get over there? So then I'd go all the way back down. And I'm like, no, I'm going to make it to this one. I'd take the exit. I'm like, no, it's over there. I need to get over there. It's awful. So... <laughs> Siri couldn't tell you how to get there. No, nobody would tell me. I don't have my little British voice that tells me now how to get around. I just had the map quest. So um, I moved here, and and that was 12 years ago, 12, 13 years ago. And I still did not know. Again, I picked up all of my old habits. It didn't really matter where I was. That's the problem, is the habits still follow you. So I still party all the time. I just found a different people to party with. I'd go to Raleigh all the time on the weekends and hang out. Um, most of my friends were married and having kids, which was a double-edged sword. I was very happy for them, but it was very bittersweet for me. Yeah. So then that just made me want to feel even further. And you couldn't really appreciate the protection of the Lord at this point because you weren't walking in step with him. Oh, no, yeah, no. I mean, there was a God, but that was... Still, yeah. Yeah, I was just going to make myself feel better with whatever I wanted to do. So tell me when Daniel Schrall comes into the picture. <laughs> so we, so I had done match.com in Raleigh and that's how I went out. Like I went out on four or five dates a week just for fun, whatever. Well, I moved to Columbia and I was like, mm-hmm. so different. <laughs> <laughs> Not everybody had their teeth. <laughs> uh, it was just, just a little different. And so after a little while, I was like, yeah, I think I'm going to get off this. I think it's just not working out for me. So I got off, and then a guy had asked me out, and he said, and apparently he saw me at public. He, he ghosted me on the date, like didn't end up following through with it. And then he emailed me, and I was like, who is this guy? Like, who, what is this person. He had seen me at the grocery store. And so he, and I didn't know who he was. So I was signed back on for three free days because <laughs> I needed to check out to see who he was. So I get on and I'm like, Oh yeah, no, I'm not sure I want to go out with this guy. That's fine. During that time, Daniel emailed me and he was one of the few people that emailed me that I was like, Oh, this is interesting. Maybe I'll... now, now I don't, this was also God because Homeboy had on like the mock turtleneck, <laughs> a gold chain. I, I, that was God going, no, I'm just going to put some rose-colored glasses on that and make sure you only see him. Aww. He's cute as a button, but I was like, yeah. Mm. I wish I still had those pictures. Me so, too. Yeah, because they'd be plastered everywhere. <laughs> I'm sure you. So we. Uh, so he asked me, and he was very different. He was, if you're interested, you know, in a couple of the emails exchanges that we had, he was. I'm in seminary. If you're interested in going to bars and things like that, that's not me. Well, that's all I had been doing. And I was like, okay. So he like just laid it all out there, and I was like, oh, well, this is interesting. This is different. Maybe I should get to know him. 
So we set up a date. Both of us on our date night, first date night, were sick as a dog. Like, I have a horrible cold. I'm working downtown. I don't know where he's coming from, but he's sick. And he said, I'll come pick you up downtown. Again, because that's smart. And so I said, okay, I'm in a big blue pickup truck. (laughs) Okay, well, that can't be hard. So I'm standing on the corner of Main and Hampton Street. (laughs) Big blue pickup truck. Slows down, keeps going. So I'm like, pretty sure that was a blue pickup truck. Comes back around. Slows, this time, looks at me. And I'm like, is he trying to check me out? I'm not joking. He went probably around the block four or five times. And I thought to myself, if he goes around one more time, I am done. I'm done. But he had been on so many bad dates that he was worried that yeah. I wasn't who I said I was. He was praying about it, like, the whole time. Yeah. <laughs> you, let's say that that's what yeah. he was doing. So I got in the truck, and, and it was a very romantic date at Moe's. <laughs> So we went to, in the Northeast. I'm thinking, where are we going? What are we doing? Where are we going? He's like, no, it's this great new Mexican restaurant. It's Moe's. And I thought, okay. Because we have those in Raleigh. We have been to those before. So we went to Moe's. And again, he like laid it out there. He's like, I'm not going to have sex with you. I'm not going to do this. And I'm thinking, gosh, this is really different than what I'm used to. But it's very intriguing all at the same time. So we kept talking, and um, I mean, it was like instantaneous for us. Instantaneous. So good old Mo's. Good, good old Mo's. <laughs> he, he won you fast. Match.com and Mo's. So you think like when I've when I've heard I've not heard this much of your story before, but we've been friends for a while, and I've heard about the heartache and about Jake and the divorce, and you would think that, okay, well, you meet a godly guy that's in seminary, that's seeking the Lord, that's it. Like, that's, that's the dream of every girl. <laughs> like, it's all too. tied up in a bow, and now it's great. So here's what ended up happening. So we had kind of like a whirlwind. Because at that point, I'm, you know, almost 30 years old. I know what I want. And we, so we dated, we, we met right before Christmas. It was like November, first part of Christmas, something like that. And went on our romantic date at most. And we ended up going to, um, talking on the phone a lot over the holidays. By March, we were engaged. That's how fast it was. Once again, romantic. Not really. <laughs> and, but we went to a wedding in Raleigh. This is where it all changed. This is where it all changed. We went to a wedding in Raleigh, and I was all proud, you know, puffed up and bringing my man back home to meet all my peeps, and I'm excited, and we had a blast, and, you know, he's still trying to woo me, so, like, he danced with me and fun stuff like that, and it was on our way back home, and we were talking about family and how we couldn't wait to get married and these types of things, and topics came up like how we would raise our children, and I'm like, well, you're, you're delusional if you think that we're going to preach on, you know, abstinence and no sex before marriage. Like, that's not realistic. That's when my non-belief became real for him. And he recognized that we were not equally yoked. And this is how strong he is. And I'm, I'm, now I hated him then, but I'm proud of him now. Two days later, he came home, or he came to my house and said, I can't marry you. 
and he broke it off. And I was devastated. Like, we were already in premarital counseling, and we were going to a church together, and I was like, I don't understand. What do you mean? And he said, there's a difference between believing in Jesus and believing in God. Having Jesus as your Lord and Savior and God. And I'm like, I don't understand. And so he broke it off with me, and I was devastated. And once again, I found myself alone, nothing fulfilling me, back by myself, just like I had been time and time and time after again. And so um, we had an appointment that, this this is like on a Monday or Tuesday, that Wednesday or Thursday, we had an appointment for premarital counseling. So he said, I'm not going, but I suggest you keep the appointment. So I did, and I went and met with our pastor, and um, it was scripture that he gave me to read and what Daniel had been saying to me. And I came back home that night, and I sat on my couch and was like, God, I can't do this anymore. I just cannot do this anymore. I don't care what it is you want me to do, but I'm yours. And I'm sobbing, like I'm sobbing on the couch, curled up, my labs, my big giant labs like snuggled up with me going, mom, stop crying. And I just thought, I can't, I can't, I can't do this anymore. Jesus, I'm yours. And I fell asleep. And I remember distinctly waking up the next day feeling like my feet were rooted. I had a foundation now. And I know that sounds crazy, but I remember feeling like roots grew through my feet and into the ground and I was on solid ground and I was, I was, I was good. And so um, that's when, over time, I mean, it was not a lot of time, but it was a couple of weeks that he would come back and talk to me. But he wanted me to become firm, not because of him, but because he wanted the Holy Spirit to do its work in me. And so, he, so that's what kind of happened. And um, fast forward to July. I mean, it seems like we're talking years, we're talking months. But fast forward to July, and we got reengaged. And then got married in November. So we, from the time we met to the time we got married and all of that happened was 11 months. And during that time, I felt the Holy Spirit telling me, you need to quit your job because this is not the right job for you. So during that time, I quit my job with no other job. And so it was a busy 11 months. And so, yeah, we got married and, and I thought, oh, great. Life's going to be perfect now. No. We have, Daniel and I are very passionate about marriage and marriage struggles because we, this November, we have been married, oh, I should probably calculated that before, 11 years. And I would say nine to 10 of those, probably nine of those years, we've been in heavy counseling. We have, the first year was awful. We fought like cats and dogs because picture me, Miss independent little farm girl coming in, now working her job. And by the way, Daniel was raised Cuban. So his Cuban grandparents and his Cuban mom raised him. And he has a very different background. He still lived with his mom. So he was like, well, I'll just go to my mom's house to my wife's house. <laughs> and those were the arguments we had. No, I'm not doing your laundry. No, I'm not. No. So he, I'm not your mom. And so that was a struggle that we had for a while. And then when we decided to have children, so we kind of masked it for a while. You can be functionally dysfunctional. And that's what we did. We got some counseling here and there, and it was good. And 
then we'd be on the right track, and then we would just sweep everything else under the rug. And it was when we got pregnant and had to go through infertility again because we learned that he had some infertility issues too. So we did the whole same process for the most part that I did the first pregnancy and um, had our son Charlie. Mm -hmm. And that brought up a whole new level of stress. And so that's when he stopped seminary and was working full-time. I'm working full-time, and we have a baby, and all the stress rolls in. And then, then, if that's not enough, because we could sweep through that, like we, we could power through that on our own. We were going to just get through that. I remember sitting in the doctor's office at six weeks, your post-checkup, and my um, OBGYN is a Christian, and he said, so do you want birth control? And I'm like, no, I don't need birth control. God wants me to have another baby. We both have infertility issues. We'll have another baby. It'll be fine. I was pregnant that week. I got pregnant that week. (laughs) So I still get the question is, are my my kids are 10 and a half months apart? And people ask, is that possible? 10 and a half months. (laughs) I'm here to say it is. So we're sitting there. And I, and I didn't even know I was pregnant. So I'm, you know, working, those kinds of things. And a friend at work said, are you sure you're not pregnant? I'm like, you are crazy. No, I'm not pregnant. I've just got a cold. I'm tired. I'm a new working mom. Everything's fine. So I drove home. Got, I got Charlie. I drove, started driving. I'm like, oh, I forgot something at work. So I start driving back to work. And I'm like, oh, oh, I don't feel so good. And I go all over, and I'm like, oh, that's not good. <laughs> so, I rush, so I rush home. I didn't even take the kid out of the car seat. Rush home, and I grab the pregnancy test, and I take it. And I'm looking at the pregnancy test, and literally the test, like it tests positive before the test, like the, you know, the little test part comes up. And I was like, oh, no, this one's broken. <laughs> so I take another. <laughs> like, this one must be old. So I do it again, and I'm like, Positive test strips test. I'm like, nope, this one's broken too. They're all showing up positive. Too, like, like it's like it's not even washing over before it shows up positive. And I thought, no, no, it's not right either. So I stayed in denial for a little while, and then I had to go to the doctor because I had the respiratory issue. So the doctor goes, "Is there any chance you're pregnant?" And I'm like, maybe. <laughs> but I'm in denial until a doctor tells me so. And he like, okay, well we need to do a pregnancy test. And he comes back and he goes, "You're pregnant." I'm like, I know. So Daniel comes home and I'm sitting here nursing our four-month-old. Like I'm like, he's like, what'd the doctor say? And I'm like, we're gonna have a baby in six months. Because by the way, I went to the doctor, I was already almost past my first trimester. And he goes, What? I said, we're gonna have a baby in six months. And he goes, Well, what are we gonna do? I'm like, we're going to have a baby in six yeah. months. And he's like, no, no, what are we going to do? And I'm like, I'm going to need you to wrap your head around this. I got nothing, I got nothing for you. I'm, I'm going to need you to wrap your head around this. I got a baby on, you know, I'm nursing right now. I'm going to need you to wrap your head around this one. Go call somebody. Yeah. We're having a baby in six months. And we did. Yep. Charlie and, and Cole. Charlie and Cole. And so um, they're now six and seven. And the second pregnancy, this is why God gave us coal. I know for a fact God gave us coal because we could have continued down the path of functional dysfunction 
for a long time. And I also don't know that Daniel, he was an only child, his mom was an only child. I don't know if God had not just made it happen that he would have ever been comfortable enough to have a second child. And so that was kind of some growth for us too. And then when Cole came along is when our marriage just started to crumble. So it was some very close friends of ours. Um, I called him because I was close, very close to him. um, And he said, you know, I just went through this class and it's about how to be a godly leader in the home. And so he connected us with, because at this point we've been to clinical counseling, been to pastoral counseling. I mean, we've we've done it all, but we hadn't done that class. So we ended up going to that class and we do attribute those traits that taught Daniel how to be a godly leader in the home, that's what transformed our marriage. And when he was transformed into the godly leader that we needed, then it allowed God to work in me. And together we have slowly been growing. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm so thankful that we went to that class. And it's been a lot of work, a whole lot of work. And there are still times where we crash and burn, but um, God put us together for a reason. Mm-hmm. Um, he and I are complete opposites, and that can clash at times, mm-hmm. but we have a commitment to each other to work through it. I want to say, as somebody who witnesses their life and their marriage, that she's telling a lot of dramatic stories, but they are <laughs> champions for marriage, and they mm-hmm. love each other, and they encourage so many other couples in marriage and to and to seek help well, and to get real and it's um, no secret. Just a couple of years ago, um, at, while we were here at Shandon, this has been probably two years ago. We were ready for divorce again. We were done, and we were finished. And I thought, oh, great, here I go again. And it was his mutual and my mutual agreement that we have to honor our covenant to our Savior first. That we decided to once again get back focused and figure out what the problems were. And so that's why we're so passionate about it because even after you know the class helped us through some of those things, it's still work and it takes a lot of effort and it takes all these things to make a marriage work and that was why we're, that's why we are so passionate about it because it's not a one-time fix-all situation. And so um, now we're kind of, we can catch ourselves now and we get into bad cycles or whatever it might be. Mm-hmm. The day I met you, you were like this. And you were probably like that for six weeks. That you showed that illustration a little bit ago. Just you weren't ready to let anybody in, and it it came up later that it was stuff going on with y'all. Mm-hmm. But um, what do you feel like is your the sin that you're just bent toward? Like where does Jesus have to meet you every single day? So that's varied a little bit for me over the years. But I will say so. So pride is one of them. And it comes out in different ways, but that can kind of ebb and flow a little bit. Since having children, I would say that my biggest problem where Satan attacks me the most is my insecurities, is my, how my body changed after pregnancy, you know, just my insecurities went haywire after having kids. And I don't really know what that was. Um, I don't blame it on the hormones anymore because those <laughs> are six and seven now. So I can't really say that that's the problem. Um, 
But I do, my insecurities are, and it's, it's random things. Like, I could do one little thing that everybody else is like, that's not a big deal. And I'm like, oh, I'm a horrible person. And so I struggle with that on a daily basis. And I have, an, I have a matter-of-fact personality. If you want to know, don't ask my opinion if you don't want to know. And I'm going to tell you how it is. I'm going to try to tell it, try to tell it kindly. But I'm just, that's just my, per, and I'm a take charge person. I, that's just what I do. Um, I still work outside the home. And my matter of factness can be harsh. So I have to watch that. I did it to my husband today. I, my delivery and what I was trying to say was poor timed and poorly said. And it made him feel awful. So I just have to think through. Those are my two biggest issues right now. Mm-hmm. God, don't give any more because I can't handle any more right now. <laughs> don't do that. I need to Stop work on that. those. Let You're, me work on these first. I'll give you one tomorrow. That's right. That's right. <laughs> um, do you feel like you reach a point where you go like running to God in, in these struggles? Like what is, where, what's your like breaking point where you realize, okay, I, this is, so here's I need the my Savior right So here's interesting thing. Having gone through all the trials and tribulations, and I ha- this is my life verse, and I would love to tell you that I'm great at memorizing it. I'm not. Um, it's Romans 5, 3, and 4. Not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character hope. And that's true, 100%. I don't doubt what God can do in my life. I just got to get out of the way. I don't doubt his power and his protection over my family. I don't doubt that his plan is better on my own because he did reveal to me years and years later that the reason that I had Jake and then the miscarriage is because I was, can I say this? I was hell-bent to do it my way. And he was like, okay, go do it your way. See how that works out for you. And so I suffered that because I was doing it my way and how I wanted to do it. So there's, there's not necessarily, a, I mean, I, I always want to be doing and being where God wants me to be because I've seen the other way mm-hmm. and it's not good, even though I like to think that I know better. So I want your, your best no filter answers for these oh, two okay. questions. You don't have you a filter anyway. Yeah, I was going to say <laughs> What is the hardest or worst thing happening in your life right now? And then what's the best thing? Um, Oh, gosh. That's kind of hard. The best thing is that Daniel and I are, are solidified. Like, I know that there's nothing that we can't do together now. And I know that he's committed to me, I'm committed to him, and we love each other deeply. And we may get on each other's nerves or aggravate each other, but we are committed to each other and we love each other. So that's the best thing. Um, Ten days ago, my mother-in-law died unexpectedly of a heart attack. She dropped dead at church. And this was on a Wednesday. And my my mother-in-law was at my house every single day. And now keep in mind, we have, my husband is um, an interim pastor at a church right now, Southside Baptist Church. So we've got that. He's working part-time. He's in seminary. 
um, finishing up Greek, so he's got a slew of homework. I travel for work lately, so I've been traveling 40% of the time, which is really hard to do with a family. And she was our backup. And she was super close to our family. She drove me bonkers, but she was super close to our family. And so it was a complete and utter shock 10 days ago when I got the call at 8.30 in the morning or 9 o'clock in the morning, and she had died. And so that's been really, really hard. And God's taught me a really important lesson I pray I never forget. Don't let your differences with somebody skew or otherwise change how you view them. Because to me, she was this feisty Cuban woman that never had boundaries and always wanted to be at my house and drove me bonkers and did things her way. And then I saw at at her funeral and all the outpouring that she had, how much she served everybody. And that's really all she was doing for us in her way. But we always had kind of, we loved each other, but there was always kind of this wall there. And I regret letting those differences keep me from showing her more love. Mm -hmm. And so I can't do anything about it now. I know she's with Jesus, but I can't do anything about that. But I let, that was a mistake on my part. And all I can do is learn from it at this point. Um, We're still struggling through that. She was a big part of our life. So we're now having to find a new normal. Um, My husband's in obviously deep grieving stage. And so it's just something we have to work through. But um, I cried on the couch the other night, and I'm like, he's, he looked and he says, why are you crying? And I said, because you're not going to be around to aggravate me anymore. <laughs> and he was like, okay. And I'm like, because you just annoyed me, and now she's not here to annoy me. And I was just lost it all over again. Poor Daniel. I know. <laughs> yeah, no, right. Poor Daniel. Daniel. Yeah. So what does it mean to you to say that Jesus healed me? That hole, that void I had that I desperately tried to find with everything you hear people trying to do, with with what the world does. How can I satisfy me? Me, 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 me. Um, He's he's what satisfied me. And I don't think you understand that necessarily. And it wasn't until somebody explained that to me. And I, he, I mean, I had to, I was, I pray my children are not as stubborn as I was. I mean, he had to bring me to my knees 50,000 times to finally, I was like, fine, I can't do it myself. But he's, he's what's filled that void for me. And, and I, I can't explain how great it is. Yeah. Yeah. I can't explain it, but it's, I will, I, he's my savior and I love him. Yeah. And we're going to try to do our best to explain it in, yep. in whatever words we can find. Yeah. Well, thank you. Yeah. you know, thank Anna. I love where Anna says, I believed in God, but I wasn't a believer. She says that about herself. And then when Daniel breaks off their engagement, he essentially tells her the same thing, that there's a difference in believing in God and believing in Jesus. She believed in a deity. She was missing the relationship. She was missing allowing herself to be his child and resting in his love and grace. She calls it functionally dysfunctional. That's how she described her marriage to Daniel and that's what she was doing with her relationship with God. It was there, but it wasn't working. She wasn't investing in it. She was just letting it be a thing. After she talked to God and gave him control, 
She stopped trying to fill all those voids herself, and she found real contentment in Jesus' grace. 2 Corinthians 12.9 says, My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in your weakness. Thank you so, so much for listening to this month's The Well podcast. Please come and see us at Shandon Baptist Church for our next Well event. Our schedule is linked on the episode.